The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. November 22nd, 1963. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, is assassinated while traveling to Dallas, Texas in a 1961 open-top Lincoln Continental convertible limousine. The car is the second of three vehicles used by the Secret Service for the motorcade that day. It's driven by Secret Service agent Bill Greer. Another Secret Service agent, Roy Kellerman, rides shotgun. Governor of Texas John Connolly and his wife Nellie sit in the middle jump seat. And the president and his wife Jackie ride in the back. At 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, Nellie turns to JFK and says, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Which President Kennedy acknowledges by saying, no, you certainly can't. And then Jack found out that at least one person in Dallas didn't care for him at all. When according to the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Kennedy was waving to the crowds on his right with his right arm upraised on the side of the limo when a shot entered his upper back, penetrated his neck and slightly damaged his spine and lung before exiting out the center of his throat just beneath his larynx and nicked the left side of his suit tie knot. He raised his elbows and clenched his fists in front of his face and neck, then leaned forward and left. Mrs. Kennedy, facing her husband, put her arms around him in concern after this first bullet. Roughly five seconds later, another shot hits the president, supposedly entering through the rear of his head, but somehow also blowing off the top of his skull and causing him to rock back and to the left. Some say it's possible for a bullet to act that way. Many others say absolutely not. And then Jackie starts to climb up and over the seat and tries to get out of the back of the car. She knows, as anyone who's watched the Sapruder film of the incident, that John is long gone. We all now know definitely that JFK died that day, but very few agree as to how he died or as to why he died. JFK's life and death explored in this opening installment of the first two-part episode in Time Suck History. Let's get curious, let's get presidential, let's get conspiratorial, and let's get sucked. You're listening to Time Suck. 
Happy Friday time, suckers. Some bonus suck for all you suck heads out there. I'm Dan Cummins, and you're listening to the 600 bonus review iTunes edition of Time Suck. And uh, and thanks for getting us all the way to 600 iTunes reviews, you guys. Last I checked, uh, the show was already at over uh, 630 iTunes reviews, so already making good progress to the 700 review episode, which will be Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Vlad Dracula, Dracula, the man behind the legend. The man behind the legend that spawned the 1992 film based on the 1897 book Bram Stoker's Dracula, where Keanu Reeves inexplicably uh, spoke like a 90s Southern California stoner while playing a 19th century British solicitor. Uh, Anyway, uh, you you don't end up as the basis for one of the most uh, feared monsters of mankind's history by being a nice guy. Dude did his best to bring the Dark Ages back into the 15th century with his torturous ways. Uh, Appreciate all the new subscriptions, uh, the PayPal donations at timesuckpodcast.com, so generous. And uh, those of you who've been clicking on that Amazon button at timesuckpodcast.com to do your Amazon shopping, appreciate that as well. Uh, Loving all the pics you time suckers have been sending in, wearing that unicorn nutsack. You know, varies between three and four hundred percent pure uh, second generation Time Suck T-shirt. So many of you uh, rocking the uh, the original one hundred and thirteen percent muskrat labia original. So good, so so soft, so very very soft. You can see some pics of Time Suckers wearing these beauties at at Dan Cummins Comedy on Instagram. That's at Dan Cummins Comedy on Instagram. I'll be posting more of those pics soon. And uh, starting next week, I'm really excited. If you follow Time Suck on social media uh, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, backslash uh, or slash time suck on uh, podcast on Facebook. You can hear a sneak preview of 60 seconds of the following week's episode. It's going to be a new thing. Very excited about inter- uh, in- introducing this new feature next week. Uh, just had it developed especially for the suck. So hoping to have uh, again that first preview uh, audio clip uh, next Friday, June 9th, June 9th at 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific Daylight Time. So you can just suck, uh, you know, just a bit of the Monday, June 12th episode before it comes out. And then hopefully, you know, if you like it and you're trying to explain to others, you know, why they should listen, well, now you can share a little piece of the show uh, before it comes out on social media with friends not familiar yet with the suck. Give them a little taste. Let it hit their lips just for a second and then pull it back. Make them want to put the whole thing in their mouth. Wait, uh, what am I even talking about right now? Uh, thanks to Time Suckers, Haley, uh, Adam Lombardo, Russell Clem, Brent Hall, Drew Fitzpatrick, Bjorn Wild, Derek Wright, Henry Waters, and whoever else asked for this episode that I may have missed, uh, you sent me into a suck so big, I quickly realized one episode just wouldn't be enough to suck. It couldn't fit the whole thing in my mouth. I mean, brain, today. And uh, before we get into uh, part one of this great big pile of JFK, uh, how about you grab a donut? You know, it's National Donut Day. Why not, man? I, I heard there's zero calories today. I heard, uh, if you listen to this on, uh, on Friday, uh, as the Friday it comes out, I, I hear it's National Donut Day, and I hear that uh, all donuts are zero calories. So go ahead and have 15 of them. It won't even fucking phase you at all. And now, uh, let's check in with some more Time Suckers with some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Adding on to Mondays, uh, this past Monday's Shark episode, is a great email I got from Aussie sucker Julia Cox. The subject line is, Australian suck hardcore. I love it. And Julia says, hear this suck god. I I live near the beach in Australia, and we have sirens like tornado sirens to warn swimmers when sharks are in the ocean. That's fucking awesome. Uh, One time, when I was only 10, I was having a swim one afternoon after school, along with a heap of other swimmers, when the sirens went off warning me about sharks. I shit you not... Hardly anyone got out of the water. The guys swimming out in the deeper part came in a little, but the rest of us were like, fuck it. 
My mother was there watching me swim while sirens were warning us of the sharks. Learned in the paper the next day, it was like a three-meter great white. Australians are hardcore. If that shit ain't biting my leg right now, then I don't need to worry about it. Plus, one time, I went to the Thunderbox uh, at my my nan's place, and as I sat down, noticed a big-ass snake just chilling in the water trying to cool down in the 45 degrees Celsius heat. So basically, if this episode frightened any of these suckers listening, you should warn them not to come to the coast of Queensland because they'll fucking die. Keep on sucking the suck, Cummins. Julia Cox. Gotta love this. Shark sirens going off, and Australian swimmers not giving a shit. You know, I've met a fair amount of uh, Australians in my life, and they certainly seem to be a hardcore bunch. I lived in an Australian neighborhood when I studied for a semester many years ago in uh, London, and uh, during the biggest binge-drinking phase of my life, those Aussies uh, made me look like an amateur. You know, they made me look like I just had my first wine cooler. Also, a lot of Aussies uh, seem to have no problem with a bar fight either, uh, and quite fond of the word cunt. Not, not a dainty bunch down under. I also love Thunderbox to describe a toilet. Did not know that Aussie slang, but I will never forget it now. They're gonna, gonna drop some lightning in the Thunderbox. Stay clear of the Thunderbox. I feel a storm a-coming. Uh, guessing Julia uh, sat at the Thunderbox despite the snake. Glad, glad that snake didn't, uh, didn't attack your vagina, Julia. I, I assume it didn't. Or maybe it did, and you're just so casual with uh, animal violence and your tough Aussie way that you didn't even think that part of the story was worth mentioning. Had another snake go from my vag the other day. I just slapped him aside, sat down on my thunderbox. Cut him up once I was done, used him for shark bait. Tied him around my waist, swam about until a shark got close enough to poke him in the shark eye. Little fucking wank anyway. I love it, Julia. Love it. Uh, Time Sucker Ted Richard also added an update, leaving a comment on the TimesuckPodcast.com message board saying, Quick update. You stated in the shark episode uh, that there is only one predator larger than the great white shark, orcas. Actually, the largest predator on the planet is the sperm whale. Well, I fact-checked, uh, and Ted is right. Uh, yeah, sperm whale is the, is the biggest predator. The giant and colossal squid, octopus, uh, cuttlefish, variety of other fish. They're the largest of the toothed whales, the largest toothed mammal to ever live on Earth. They can reach over 60 years of age, up to 60 feet or 67 feet in length, and weigh up to 130,000 pounds. And they primarily eat uh, uh, giant and colossal squids, uh, which themselves uh, can reach a length of, of roughly 40 feet. That's a colossal squid and weigh over 1,500 pounds. That's a lot of fucking, that's a colossal amount of calamari. Well, um, when I was researching last week, I, I kind of had tunnel vision, I guess. And I was looking for um, predators that could attack a great white. And somehow I missed the sperm whale, even though some websites do claim that sperm whales have attacked great whites. Uh, I don't feel like it's agreed upon by all scientists, all marine biologists, but one website I found, extremescience.com, that looks, you know, kind of legit. I'd give it a, a, a 6 out of 10 on the legit scale. Uh, even claims that sperm whales uh, with teeth up to 11 inches long, um, yeah, that, that they've eaten great whites. Uh, sperm whales, incidentally, don't gobble up people and prefer the ocean depths as opposed to any place near a beach. So, uh, I mean, clearly they're too big to accidentally bump into you anywhere near a beach. But Melville's uh, story of Moby Dick is based on tales of an albino, uh, albino sperm whale in the 1840s known as Mocha Dick. So you'd think it'd be a brown, <laughs> you'd think it'd be a brown whale, but it's Mocha Dick. Mocha Dick, that sounds just uh, not good. If, if your nickname is, you know, Mocha Dick, well, I guess, you know, if you're, you're uh, a handsome African-American man and you, and, you got a, and you got a nice Mocha Dick, I guess that's not negative. Um, at first I pictured a, a white guy having a brown dick. That seems negative. That seems like you should get that checked out. Anyway, um, uh, this mocha dick seemed to have a fondness for attacking whaling ships, 
they have sunk ships before, uh, especially the wooden sailing ships of the 15th through 19th centuries. So, you know, I guess they kind of have attacked in a different way. Well, thanks, Ted. Now we know. And now we have a new creature to fear as we lay in bed at night and wonder how badly we'd freak the fuck out if we ended up bobbing around stranded in the open sea. And uh, time, suck, uh, time sucker Noah Saldana uh, wrote in response to my plan of, of climbing a tree if ever chased by a bear. Uh, apparently, that defense strategy is really, really bad. Uh, Noah says, hey, Dan, Noah here again. Uh, love the shark attack episode. I had nothing but praise for that episode until you got to your bear defense strategy. You said, if I saw a bear, at least I can climb a tree. Well, I'm glad you've never gotten attacked by a bear because you'd be surprised to find out that they are excellent climbers and will eat your ass. No pun intended, as your ass would most likely be the first thing it sees. In reality, there are two defenses against bears, and there are two different types of bears most commonly encountered. Against each bear, do not run. You look like prey. Carry bear spray in bear areas and spray them if they get too close for comfort. First, against black bears, you want to look like uh, a big animal and intimidate them. And if you are attacked, fight like Bojangles and a skunk ape who were mad over the last leg of Rodney Bobby's kid. (laughs) Oftentimes, uh, they will stop attacking because it is too much work as black bears are lazy. Again, no pun intended. Uh, next, we have grizzly slash brown bears. Now, with these bad mama jammas, uh, you need to be loud to announce your presence when you are in their territory where you might think there may be brown bears. Oftentimes, the only reason they attack is because you startled them and they decided uh, it's go time. Now, if you have bear spray and they are, in fact, being mauled by one of these grizzly bears, uh, you should just curl up into the fetal position and cover your neck and act as dead as old Jeffrey and wait until you are no longer being attacked and the bear is gone because if you get up and they see you are alive and have just announced that you would like another uh, dose, you've announced you've just like uh, another dose of grizzly teeth and claws. These bears are known to watch and wait for victims to get back up. Anyways, just thought you should know you're suckling, Noah. Well, thank you, Noah. Uh, You know, I have heard of that playing dead strategy when I uh, read horrific stories as a kid from an old book called Alaska Bear Tales. (laughs) <laughs> which is doesn't doesn't make you want to like hike uh, anytime soon after reading it. You know, where people like play dead and the grizzly bears smacked them around and then snacked on them. And sometimes it worked, but uh, holy shit, how do you lie still when a fucking bear is attacking you? I don't think I, I'm not that good of an actor. I think if a bear was gnawing on me, I'd probably, you know, scream a whole bunch. I'd uh, probably cry, probably beg for mercy. Maybe irrationally plead with a wild animal as if it could understand me. Just come on, come on, buddy. Come on, just calm down. Just calm the fuck down. Look, if you want... If you want, if you want to calm down, you know, I'm on, I'm on your team. I don't, I don't even care. I don't even care that you almost bit my leg off. Just, it's cool. It's fine. Just let me, let me limp back to camp to tell people how cool it was. <laughs> Please. I don't know. Uh, I like the look big and scare the black bear policy, though. I do like that. Uh, hopefully I don't ever have to deal with uh, either situation. All this bear talk makes me want to just uh, take my chances in the water now, actually. At least, you, at least you tend to die quickly with a shark instead of, uh, you know, being used as some kind of living chew toy by a grizzly. And, and finally, update from Lindsay Cummins, my wife. Uh, she had no interest in this podcast initially, but then my kids, you know, started listening. A few episodes in the car. Now she is also hooked. Now she's a time sucker. Took her a while to admit it, but she is. You know, strangely, she has uh, very little, little interest still in hearing what I say in regular life. Uh, oh, well. Uh, she forwarded me uh, a dark web article that my buddy Scott Long, another time sucker, uh, sent me later the same day. And it's that Ross Ulbricht, the founder of the Darknet marketplace known as Silk Road, we talked about this in the dark web episode, lost just the other day his appeal of a 2015 conviction that has him serving a life sentence on drug trafficking and money laundering charges. Uh, according to federal uh, appeals court decision that was released uh, uh, Wednesday morning, May 31st. 
You know, Ulbricht argued that the district court uh, that convicted him violated his Fourth Amendment rights, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. But the appeals court ruled that the search warrant for Ulbricht's laptop, as well as warrants for his Facebook and Google accounts, were not overly broad and did not violate his Fourth Amendment rights, uh, sending uh, libertarian uh, freedom fighters into fucking tizzy fits. And, uh, you know, a new study also shows that Ulbricht's sentencing uh, may not have deterred those looking to buy narcotics online. Darknet uh, trade actually saw a sales bump following the news of Ulbricht's life sentence, according to Wired Magazine. And apparently, uh, the fact that the lead agent on the multi-departmental team to bring down Ross, DEA agent Carl Mark Force IV, pled guilty to extortion, money laundering, and obstruction for justice for acts he committed during the investigation to Ulbricht, uh, didn't make the judge rethink his sentence. And if you uh, you want to understand how fucking stupid I think Ross's life sentence was and how futile the current war on drugs is, just go back and listen to that Dark Web episode. And then also Time Sucker Andrew Weingard, uh, or Wygand, excuse me, from New Hampshire added regarding Ross, not that he isn't a bad dude for trying to get someone whacked, which he you know, also allegedly did, but basically what he got best busted for was hosting a venue. It would be like sending the McDonald's CEO to prison because two people met at McDonald's to plot a crime. Everything about that case is fishy. To me, the life sentence is a huge tell about how fearful the state is of something they can't control. Honestly, I think that's the real heart of the matter. Looking forward to sucking this week. Suck later, dude. Uh, I agree, Andrew. I mean, I mean, McDonald's isn't, you know, uh, illegal in nature like Ross's. Well, I guess, you know, his store wasn't illegal in nature. He was just setting up a store where you, you could sell whatever you wanted that could be illegal. So that's actually a, a great analogy. And I do think the feds made an example of old Ross, you know? I really do. I think, uh, you know, you diddle some kids, you're going to get a slap on the wrist. Probably be out in a year or two. But you create an alternate economy running on some kind of cryptocurrency that the IRS doesn't get to tax. Oh, boy. You're an enemy of the fucking state now. All right. Well, thank you for the updates, everyone. Uh, and also, uh, if I didn't get to yours, there still is a chance I'll read it on a future episode. I do read everything sent to admin at timesuckpodcast.com. Your emails, posts, social media messages mean so much. The posts on the message board. Uh, I've been exhausted a bunch of times and worried that I wouldn't get Monday's episode done in, done in time or not, not at least in, in the way I wanted it to be done. And then I read a few more inspiring messages. Uh, I see the listenership continue to grow, which means you're sharing this thirst we have for curiosity with your friends. It means that much to you, and I get a second win. I, I really do. You guys are the fucking best fans anyone could ask for. Uh, I've been meeting Time Suckers at shows recently, more and more, talking to you guys afterward, and continually reminded just how open-minded, curious, kind, and fucking incredible you people are. And I, I know you want more. Uh, I get those emails like footnotes to articles uh, so you can discuss them with your friends and kind of do further suck on your own. Uh, you want more episodes. I really do hope to get to all that in time. Uh, really just keep spreading the suck and this show will keep growing and I'll be able to create the infrastructure I need and you know, and kind of hire the help I need to turn this into the best possible version of what I want it to be. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm going to be positive for the first time in my life. Uh, feed me, Seymour. Right? Makes me makes me work that much harder to try and give you guys a good show. A community you can be proud of. So uh now let's get let's get away from bears and sharks and the dark web and let's get into creatures even more dangerous and life threatening, uh, and that's politicians. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, JFK. JFK is the most recent of four US presidents to have been assassinated. All of them killed by gunshot, incidentally. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, 16th president. James Garfield, the 20th president. William McKinley, the 25th president. And then JFK, the 35th president. Uh, Abe Lincoln was shot on the evening of April 14, 1865 by actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, just five days after Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered uh, his massive army at uh, that courthouse in Virginia, effectively ending the American Civil War. 
quick note on Booth, he wasn't just some dinner theater actor, which is for some reason what I believed previously. He was actually one of the highest paid and most well-known uh, theater leading men of his day, uh, earning the equivalent of over half a million a year by the late 1850s. Described by critics as a handsome, muscular, energetic, and riveting performer uh, with whom uh, women were especially fond of. And then he killed the president. Can you imagine the equivalent today? Can you imagine the media shitstorm? Something like that happened? Like what? Like if Trump went to watch Christian Bale on set and then Bale snuck up behind him in a break and just fucking blast him in the back of the fucking head? That would be the biggest story of all time. I mean, oh my God, uh, you know, and then Booth fled and was shot to death 12 days later after being tracked to a Virginia farm. And then on, uh, let's get to Garfield on, on July 2nd, 1881, attorney Charles Guiteau, uh, furious over having his request to be appointed to president James Garfield's administration be denied, snuck up on Garfield, uh, at the now closed Baltimore and Potomac railroad station, in Washington, DC shot him twice in the back. First bullet crazed his arm, uh, second lodged uh, below his pancreas, and Garfield never recovered uh, from the wounds, and then he died uh, much later on September 19th, so he suffered for a while. Uh, Guiteau was uh, was hanged for the killing on June 30th, 1882, uh, even though he was rumored to have been framed by Nermal, as pointed out by Odie. Garfield the cat references. Who loved it? No one? Okay. Sounds about right. Then there's McKinley. Uh, on September 6, 1901, President William McKinley shaking hands at the uh, Pan American exhibit in Buffalo, New York, when a 28-year-old anarchist named Leon Chigos approaches him and fires two shots in his chest. The president rose slightly on his toes before collapsing forward, saying, Be careful how you tell my wife. It's, it's crazy. Uh, Chigos uh, moved over to the president with the intent of firing a third shot, but was wrestled to the ground by McKinley's bodyguards. McKinley still conscious told the guards not to hurt his assailant. Other presidential attendants rushed McKinley to the hospital where they found two bullet wounds. Uh, one bullet had superficially punctured his sternum and the other had dangerously entered his abdomen. He was rushed into surgery, seemed to be on the mend uh, by September 12th, but then later that day, the president's condition worsened rapidly and on September 14th, he died from gangrene that had gone undetected in the internal wound. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt was immediately sworn in as president. Well, Chigo was a Polish immigrant, grew up in Detroit and had worked as a child laborer in a steel mill. And as a young adult, he gravitated towards socialist and anarchist ideology. He claimed to have killed McKinley because he was the head of what Chigos thought was a corrupt government. Chigos was convicted and executed in an electric chair on October 29, 1901. The unrepentance killer's last words were, quote, I killed the president because he was the enemy of the good people, the working people. And then, of course, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was shot again on November 22, 1963 in Dallas by suspected communist sympathizer, Lee Harvey Oswald, who allegedly fired three shots from the sixth floor of a book depository. I say allegedly because unlike the previous three examples where the killer was not disputed, many don't believe Oswald actually shot Kennedy. Oswald himself never got to share his side of the story, not in court. Uh, after being captured, he was shot two days later by a man named Jack Ruby, a man suspected of mafia and CIA uh, ties. We're going to look in detail into what we know about how Kennedy died that day and what others think they know about how he died. But before we examine Kennedy's extremely controversial death, let's take a good look at his fascinating life, starting at his birth into a prominent political family with the Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. May 29th, 1917. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, known in his family as Jack, is born in Brookline, Massachusetts, a wealthy suburb of Boston. Uh, 
He's the second of Rose and Joseph Kennedy's nine kids. My God, nine kids. How do people ever do that? Uh, he was born into privilege. His dad, Joe, had made a large fortune as a stock market and commodity investor and then later rolled over the profits into real estate and other industrial investments. He also helped to restructure several Hollywood studios and made good money over and uh, La La Land as well. He was politically connected become the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom under President Roosevelt from 1938 to 1940. Uh, he negotiated contracts for importing Scotch whiskey from Scotland with FDR's son, James Roosevelt, made a bunch of money there. His company, uh, Somerset Importers, became the exclusive American agent for Gordon's Gin and Dewar Scotch. So he's uh, he's fucking, he was killing it, and he did a lot of other shit. Uh, intelligent, powerful, connected dude who was also born into privilege. JFK's grandfather, his paternal grandfather, uh, was Patrick Joseph P.J. Kennedy, son of Irish Catholic immigrants, born in Boston in 1858. PJ would become the owner of several saloons who established uh, whiskey importing relationships his son Joe would, would later profit greatly from. Uh, beginning in 1884, he, he converted his popularity into five consecutive one-year terms in the Massachusetts House of Representatives, followed by three two-year terms in the Massachusetts Senate. Uh, established himself as one of Boston's principal Democratic leaders, he was invited to give one of the uh, seconding speeches for Grover Cleveland at the party's 1888 uh, National Convention in St. Louis. So, you know, JFK was born into a, a wealthy family with decades-old political experience and relationships on his paternal side. Uh, you know, you can relate, right? It reminds me a lot of my own childhood. Uh, born to a logger and waitress in the mountains of Idaho, uh, grandchild to uh, a pastor and a pastor's wife on one side, uh, postal worker and sawmill employee who was once the mayor of Riggins, Idaho as well. On my mom's side, you know, typical elite American childhood. Uh, JFK's mom, originally Rose Elizabeth Fitzgerald, was also politically connected. Her father, JFK's maternal granddad, uh, was the original JF John Francis Fitzgerald. He was the uh, mayor of Boston for two terms, a Massachusetts congressman, son of a successful Boston businessman, Thomas Fitzgerald. He was also an early patron of the baseball team, now known as the Red Sox. I've heard of them. Uh, JFK's grandfathers were actually uh, Boston political rivals at one point. Uh, Rose was also a well-educated Boston socialite. She traveled Europe extensively, studied at the Manhattanville College of the Sacred Heart, now known as Manhattanville College. So, you know, JFK was raised by worldly, educated, politically connected people, a perfect incubation for a future president. You know, I know uh, all this talk lately is about, like, political outsiders but uh, and how people longed for a political outsider, which, you know, how Trump, you know, partially got elected. I actually long for a political insider uh, powerful enough to change a system he or she actually understands. You know, the concept of a true outsider ha has always been a little idiotic to me, you know, because you, you wouldn't let someone who's never driven a scooter, let alone a forklift, become a heavy equipment operator or the supervisor of all heavy equipment operation. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, you know, you wouldn't let someone who's never taken a geometry class, let alone studied engineering, design a bridge. But why do we think it's a good idea with so to have someone with no political experience be put in charge of the world's biggest and most complex political system? I hope someday we get a president, uh, you know, who is a career politician, but has somehow been strong enough not to let the system corrupt uh, him or her against the interests of the common working class citizen. And uh, now, even if we do get that person, how much they'll be able to accomplish in an outdated, broken system is a whole nother matter. Uh, I know there's a lot of fixing to be done. Uh, another discussion for another time suck about our government in general, perhaps. Or, you know, maybe we should just put Bojangles in charge of fucking everything. Bojangles for dictator. Three legs, one eye, one vision. For an America where pit bulls are seen as equals, if not superiors, to all other breeds of dogs. And no longer viewed primarily as the violent guardians of trailer parks and soon-to-be-abandoned drug shacks. I don't know. Anywho, back, back to reality. Uh, JFK was born into what would become a huge family. Uh, he had one older brother, Joseph Jr., 
a man who the family thought would be the one to grow up to be president. Uh, his dad was grooming Joseph Jr. to be president someday, a man who, while serving in the armed forces in World War II, became one of the most experienced fighter pilots in the Navy. Unfortunately, explosives that were carried in his plane detonated early, killed the young Navy lieutenant on August 12, 1944, at the age of 29, again in World War II. And then he'd have seven younger siblings. There was Rose, a vivacious young woman who may have been de uh, developmentally delayed, a bit, or maybe just wasn't as intellectual as her siblings, or perhaps she was just quirky and eccentric. Uh, she was definitely young and beautiful and had a bright future ahead of her until uh, an entirely avoidable tragedy struck. Uh, she fought with her parents uh, because, of, again, some kind of personality. Some people think it was de developmentally delayed. Some people just think she just didn't get along with her folks. And at the age of 23, I uh, was given a prefront prefrontal lobotomy. Remember those from the uh, Insane Asylum Time Suck episode? In the days when having differing political opinions could land you in a mental institution? Well, old Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber got a hold of her, botched the procedure, a procedure that's fucking inherently botched to begin with, and, and, and her mental capacity was re reduced to that of a two-year-old child for the rest of her life. Uh, she lost control of her ability to control her bowel movements. And she'd spend the rest of her life in an institution. She'd live to be 86, which sadly uh, seems as cruel, in her case, as JFK's life ending uh, too soon. Ugh. There was Sister Kathleen, a popular socialite named Britain's debutante of 1938 by the local press, uh, who had married Lord Harrington. Uh, Hartington, Lord Hartington, while her father served as uh, ambassador to the UK, a man who would be killed by sniper fire in World War II. Its family experienced a lot of tragedies around uh, World War II. Kathleen uh, would die herself in a plane crash uh, over the south of France shortly after the war in 1948. Uh, there was younger sister Eunice, who would go on to become the mother of Maria Shriver, the mother-in-law of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor. The governator. Uh, she'd marry Sergeant Shriver, who was the United States ambassador to France during the Lyndon Johnson presidency and the Democratic vice presidential candidate in the 1972 U.S. presidential election in 1962. She would uh, found Camp Shriver, uh, which evolved into the Special Olympics in 1968. Man, uh, she died of a stroke in 2009 at the age of 88. A lot of accomplishments in this family. Uh, there was sister Patricia Kennedy. Patricia would grow up to become a Hollywood film producer uh, and marry actor Peter Lawford for 12 years. You may remember Peter's name from the Marilyn Monroe episode when I referenced the Kennedy's possible connection to her death. Uh, well, Patricia would die of pneumonia in 2006 at the age of 82. There was younger brother Bobby, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Robert Francis Kennedy would be born on November 20th, 1925, eight years after JFK. He deserves a full-time suck uh, himself. He'd go on to one, become one of JFK's most trusted advisors. He'd become attorney general, a U.S. senator, and he'd be shot three fucking times and killed just after midnight on June 5th, 1968, after winning the California primary to hopefully become the Democratic candidate for president in that fall election. There was younger sister Jean, uh, born in 1928, uh, she's the founder of Very Special Arts, an internationally recognized nonprofit dedicated to creating a society uh, where those with disabilities can engage with the arts. In 2011, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, nation's highest civilian honor, uh, by President Barack Obama for her work with the BSA and the disabled. She's the only sibling still alive. Uh, she was a U.S. ambassador to Ireland from 1993 to 1998. It was instrumental to the Northern Ireland peace process, granted honorary Irish citizenship in 1998 in recognition of her service to Ireland. And then there was the youngest kid, Ted Kennedy. Uh, he was, like many of his siblings, an Ivy League grad. Teddy entered the Senate in November 1962 after a special election to fill the seat once held by his brother, JFK, who vacated the seat, you know, to become president. He was elected to a full six-year term in 1964 and was reelected seven more times. That's a long time. 
he was a third sibling to run for president, running in 1980 in the presidential election, losing to the Democratic primary to incumbent uh, Jimmy Carter. So as you can see, JFK was born into an exceptionally talented family. Amazing how accomplished they all became, with the tragic exception of the lobotomized Rose, uh, who basically spent 60 years staring off into the middle distance. Good God. So that's the siblings. Now back to John himself. February 20, 1920, young John Kennedy uh, contracted scarlet fever, which often killed small kids in those days. He was hospitalized for over a month. Uh, little Jack was very often sick as a, as a child. Uh, the family would joke about the great risk a mosquito would take in biting him. Some of his blood, that mosquito was almost sure to die. Dark humor in the Kennedy family. I like it. September 20, uh, 1927, in the fall of 1927, Joe moves the family from Brookline, Massachusetts, to Riverdale, an upper-middle-class neighborhood in the Bronx, uh, borough of New York City. John and his siblings attend private school there. Uh, two years later, Joe moves the family uh, again to Bronxville, an affluent suburb 15 miles north of Manhattan. The family would spend uh, summers at another home, which would become known as the Kennedy Compound, in the wealthy coastal community of Hyannisport, Massachusetts. And then they would spend, you know, winter breaks, you know, just, you know, at another house, another big compound in Palm Beach, Florida. So basically, uh, Joe Kennedy is just killing life. They're a very wealthy family. Uh, September 1930, JFK begins attending the Canterbury School in New Milford, Connecticut, a very prestigious Catholic college preparatory school for his eighth grade year. Notable alumni include William Randolph Hearst III, a member of the Hearst Fortune worth a couple of uh, billion dollars. You know, just got, you, got some, you got some dough. Joseph Campbell author of The Hero with a Thousand Faces and several other works, uh, and one of the great literary minds of the 20th century, and a whole bunch of other smart people. But JFK doesn't last long there. In April 1931, he has an appendectomy, after which he withdraws from Canterbury, uh, recuperates at home. Uh, he would battle illnesses and wounds for the rest of his life, pretty much. In September 1931, for his freshman year, JFK attends Choate Rosemary Hall, commonly known as Choate, uh, a private elite boarding school in Wallingford, Connecticut. Notable, uh, notable alumni include actors Glenn Close, Michael Douglas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Paul Giamatti, Donald Trump's daughter, uh, Ivanka, Dove Charney, the founder of American Apparel, numerous CEOs, Olympians, artists, poets, the cream of the crop. It's like a winter factory. Uh, to make the list notable alumni, which is several pages long, uh, <laughs> just on its own at this point, you have to like win an Oscar, Nobel Peace Prize, you know, or be either like the president of the kid or president, cure cancer. You know, it's, it's basically a lot like where I went to school, Sam River High. Uh, in Riggins, Idaho, whose notable alumni include uh, my mom, uh, my grandma, my aunt, uh, my sister, uh, me, a bunch of other people who can read and write and pronunciate kind of good, and uh, lots of other cool stuff, you guys. So, you know, same diff. Uh, JFK's older brother, Joe, is already a student at Choate when John gets there, a big man on campus, popular football player. John was charismatic in his own right, and despite suffering from colitis, uh, culminated with his emergency hospitalization at New Haven Hospital in 1934, he was voted most likely to succeed out of his graduating class. Incidentally, I was also voted most likely to succeed in 1995 at Sam River High School. Again, a public, a public school composed of about 80 kids who sometimes shut up to class, and we had teachers that sometimes had degrees and occasionally physically assaulted students. So, you know, uh, kind of a JFK-ish uh, childhood again myself. Kind of went to a Choate-ish type of school. Uh, 1935, Kennedy travels to London with his family after graduation, intending to study at the London School of Economics, but health problems force him to return to the States where he enrolls in Princeton. You know, it's plan B. You know, you know you're on the inside track in life when you end up going to Princeton because shit didn't work out exactly like you hoped. <laughs> 1935, uh, Kennedy briefly attended Princeton, uh, but had to leave after two months due to jaundice brought on by more gastrointestinal troubles. 
So really, really was sick a lot growing up. In September 1936, Kennedy enrolls in Harvard. Uh, I've heard of it. Uh, and his application essay states, The reasons that I have for wishing to go to Harvard are several. I feel that Harvard can give me a better background and a better liberal education than any other university. I have always wanted to go there, as I have felt that it is not just another college, but is a university with something definite to offer. Then, too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction, and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. Uh, you know, my thoughts on college were a little different. Uh, I went to Gonzaga University because my family was poor, and they gave me the most financial aid, even though I really wanted to go to Hawaii Pacific University because I wanted to hang out on the beach. Uh, I don't remember <laughs> what my application said, but I'm sure it wasn't uh, that good, that well-written. Probably something like, uh, please please help me get out of Riggins. I don't want to be getting drunk in the woods with my friends when I'm 40 and still talking about high school. I'm ashamed. I couldn't make varsity basketball or football in a small town in a tiny high school. I would like to redeem myself. I hope I attain distinction of things of not of doing better things. Sincerely, me. Anyway. At Harvard, uh, he had a fairly normal college education. He earned a spot on the varsity swimming team, also sailed in the in the star class, and won the 1936 Nantucket Sound Star Championship. If sailing isn't a sport for privileged white kids, I don't know what is. Uh, in July 1937, Kennedy sailed to France. Sailed to fucking France, taking his convertible. You know, just college stuff. Spent 10 weeks driving through Europe, impregnating roughly 1,000 European women along the way. Or did I say 1,000? I meant 100,000. It's estimated that 15% of Europeans are now direct descendants of that road trip. I bet he did have so much sex. He was a young JFK who had just sailed a convertible to Europe. My God. In June 1938, Kennedy sailed overseas with his father and older brother to work on the, uh, at the American Embassy in London. 1939. 1939, Kennedy toured Europe, Soviet Union, the Balkans, Middle East in preparation for his Harvard senior honors thesis. 1940, uh, Kennedy completed his senior thesis at Harvard. Appeasement in Munich, it's called, about British participation in the Munich Agreement. The thesis became a bestseller under the title Why England Slept. It was a bestseller, sold 80,000 copies, so now he's a successful published author at 23 years old. Kennedy graduated cum laude from Harvard University with a Bachelor of Arts in Government in the spring of 1940, uh, concentrating on international affairs. That fall, he enrolled at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and audited classes there. And then in early 1941, Kennedy left and helped his father uh, write a memoir of his three years as an American ambassador. He then traveled uh, throughout South America. His itinerary included Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. And uh, 70% of South Americans are now directly related to JFK. You look at a, you look at a young Colombian's jawline, and you tell me you don't see little fucking Kennedy right there. Also, uh, while in 1940, Kennedy had attempted to enter the Army's officer candidate school, but was medically disqualified due to his chronic lower back problems, which he also had. Uh, <laughs> he just had, kind of had a little bit of everything. Uh, he exercised for months, though, then, to straighten his back. And on September 24th, 1941... Uh, with, you know, with the help of that exercise and the help of the director of the offer, Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, you know, who has family connection, uh, Kennedy joined the United States Naval Reserve. Now, this is the kind of stuff I loved about JFK. He could have easily coasted on daddy's money, but uh-uh. He chooses to enlist. And he could have easily just avoided the war. Man, a bad back and a wealthy, politically connected dad. You don't have to fucking fight. You know, that's just reality. But in, in January 1942, uh, Kennedy is assigned to the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, a uh, field office at he uh, their headquarters, um, 6th Naval District in Charleston, South Carolina. 
He attends Naval Reserve Officer Training School at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois from July 27th to September 27th, and then voluntarily enters the Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron's Training Center in Melville, Rhode Island. Not only has he enlisted, he's going to battle. He's not signing up for the mess hall. He's not signing up to hang out with the Coast Guard back in Massachusetts, you know, sit on the beach in the summer. Uh, dude was, God, he was courageous, man. Signs up to, uh, to run a torpedo boat. And because of this decision, uh, he ends up becoming a war hero. All right, 1943. In April 1943, Lieutenant Junior Grade JFK, a.k.a. Jack Kennedy, the PT boat commander, is assigned to Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 2. On April 24, Kennedy took command of PT-109, which was based at Tulagi Island, the Solomon Islands, on the night of August 1st, going into the 2nd. PT-109, on its 31st mission, was performing nighttime patrols in the Blacklet Strait near New Georgia in the Solomon Islands with PT-162 and PT-169. Kennedy spots a Japanese destroyer nearby, attempts to turn back uh, to, to attack it. When his PT-109 is rammed suddenly at an angle in the dark, moonless night, cut in half by a destroyer costing two PT crew members their lives. Their bodies are never found. As the destroyer hits his boat, Kennedy thinks this is how it feels feels to be killed. He's thrown from the cockpit. Uh, the section of boat Kennedy was on stayed afloat, and he found four of his 12 crew members still on it. Six more are scattered in the water, but still alive. Kennedy putting that varsity Harvard swim team knowledge to use, jumps into the dark water, following his uh, the agonizing shouts of the crew, finds a badly burned engineer McMahon. Now, Kennedy tows McMahon uh, towards the other nine surviving crew members and has them vote on whether to fight or surrender. Kennedy stated, There's nothing in the book about a situation like this. A lot of you men have families, and some of you have children. What do you want to do? I have nothing to lose. Because he's a badass! They chose not to surrender, waited amongst the floating wreckage of their ship for rescue. When daylight came, uh, and then noon, still no rescue, uh, the base is 40 miles away, feeling vulnerable to being discovered by Japanese. Probably a little worried about uh, sharks. I don't know. Uh, the men chose to uh, swim to a small deserted island nearby. Nine of the crew held on to a, a two-by-six timber, kicked and paddled their way to the island. Kennedy bit down on a strap from McMahon's life vest and fucking towed him to the island. What, do you think Oliver Stone was directing him that day? My God, saving a dude's life in the South Pacific. No big whoops. That's just, that's just JFK being JFK. That's just classic Jack. Ah, oh, the men made it to the little island, hid under some trees as Japanese patrol boats and barges floated on by. No U.S. boats had come by to rescue them that night. Uh, by that night, uh, Jack decides to swim out alone, you know, because he's a hero, uh, to Ferguson's Passage, a mile and a half away, because PT boats often patrolled there after dark, took a lantern wrapped in a life jacket to signal with uh, the boat, you know, with, swam out in the dark by himself. Took two and a half hours to get where he needed to get. Uh, then he treads water for a while until eventually sees some flares of action about 10 miles away. He knew that the PT boats had taken a different route. He tries swimming back to his men, but he's exhausted. Can't fight the current any longer. Drifts out into the open sea. Passes out. Currents twirl him around throughout the night, eventually leading him back near the island where his crew was stranded. He swam back to the beach, collapsed into the arms of his crew. And then the next night, he set off from the island again to find help. This time in a dugout canoe. Uh, him and another crew member found on the island, but that canoe took on water, and they almost drowned trying to get back. Finally, they're discovered by Melanesian natives. Uh, they carried an SOS message from Kennedy to an Australian Navy coast watcher, Reg Evans. Reg Evans, it's Reg for you. Uh, who was working behind enemy lines. He radioed the U.S. Navy for assistance, and Kennedy and his men were saved. Kennedy was later awarded the Navy and Marine Corps uh, Medal for heroism. Of course he was. And the Purple Heart for his injuries. Uh, hurting his back uh, further in the incident. 
Uh, between his back and other health ailments, uh, his brother Robert would later say of JFK, at least half of the days he spent on this earth were days of intense physical pain. He had scarlet fever when he was young and serious back trouble when he was older, but I never heard him complain. Uh, apparently, uh, his brother was a, uh, was an Australian guy raised in Boston. That's, that's how that accent happened. Uh, after his heroism, JFK continues to serve in the Navy. And then on September 1st, 1943, Kennedy returns to duty. Ah, he's not done yet. Takes command of the PT-59, which was a PT boat that had converted into a gunboat. In October, Kennedy was promoted to lieutenant. On November 2nd, PT-59, uh, which included three former PT-109 crew members, took part uh, with another boat in the successful rescue of 87 more Marines stranded on uh, two rescue landing craft on the Warrior River at Choizul Island, which was held by the Japanese. And then, under doctor's orders, Kennedy was relieved of his command uh, of PT-59 on November 18th, and he returned to the U.S. in early uh, January 1954. Uh, after receiving treatment for his back injury, he was released from active duty in late 1944. Beginning in January 1945, Kennedy spent three more months recovering from more back injuries in Castle Hot Springs at Resort Temporary Military Hospital in Arizona. You know, it's crazy. I, I read this one thing, too. One of his like uh, uh, military superiors said that where a lot of soldiers would fake um, being sick, to get out of kind of you know, having to do what they were supposed to do, that uh, JFK would fake being well. He was constantly faking being, being well, trying to convince everybody that he wasn't hurt. Man, dude, I just, what an impressive dude. Uh, 1945, uh, in April 1945, Kennedy's father, who was a friend of William Randolph Hearst, arranged a position for his son as a special correspondent for Hearst newspapers. The assignment kept Kennedy's name in the public eye and exposed him to journalism as a possible career. Uh, he worked as a correspondent that May, covering the Potsdam Conference and other events. 1946, at the urging of his father, John, a.k.a. Jack, enters politics, running for and winning a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, where the young, handsome war hero would serve from 1947 to 1953 and represent Massachusetts' 11th District. 1952, while serving as congressman and after sleeping with roughly 35% of all women living on the U.S. eastern seaboard between the ages of 16 and 45 during the previous five years, uh, JFK meets Jacqueline Lee Bouvier, a young socialite from a wealthy family who, like Jack, had dabbled in journalism and, unlike Jack, uh, probably was not riddled with STDs. Uh, She had interned as a junior editor at Vogue magazine while in college, later briefly worked as an interviewer at the Washington Times-Herald, briefly engaged to a stockbroker before meeting JFK. The two were introduced by a mutual friend, journalist Charles L. Bartlett, at a dinner party. (laughs) Bartley? I put Bartlett in party there. At a dinner party. They bonded over a shared Irish Catholic upbringing. Both had uh, spent extensive time abroad in Europe. Uh, Both were super hot. And both came from families that shit gold coins for breakfast in the morning. It was a match made in heaven. I don't know why you'd eat gold coins someone to shit, but I felt good coming out of my mouth. Uh, 1953, Jack's elected senator. By this time, most children in Washington, D.C., under the age of five, are Jack's children. Uh, During the first few years of his time in the Senate, he underwent several operations on his spine. Uh, Jack's womanizing may have actually been directly related to his poor health in a weird way. Uh, In addition to his heroism, you know, back in 1936, when the 19-year-old was in the hospital, uh, when doctors were trying to control his colitis, one of his many ailments, one whose symptoms include mild to severe abdominal pain and tenderness, uh, recurring bloody diarrhea, uh, (laughs) fecal incontinence, flatulence, fatigue, loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss, Uh, he wrote in his diary, Took a peek at my chart yesterday and could see that they were mentally measuring me for a coffin. Eat, drink, and make olive. <laughs> again, again, I'm one Australian. Eat, drink, and make olive. As tomorrow or next week, we attend my funeral. 
Well, see, he was, he was worried about dying at a young age, and he overcame a fear of death at an early age. You know, He just couldn't remember a time when he, did, he didn't feel like death could be right around the corner, and he really went for that carpe diem kind of psychologically because of that. Maybe, you know, again, kind of helped make him a hero uh, in a bad way, kind of made him a womanizer, where he just, like, he, he just was always thinking that he could die at any second, and he was just going to get the most he could after every day, you know? Uh, you know, a lot of people could have taken that woe is me route. You know, he took the fuck it, not dead yet, so let's do some shit. And again, definitely to a fault when it came to his marriage, uh, since, you know, part of season of the day became a season of a variety of attractive young women, um, much more on that later with his, his rumored affairs. Uh, but now he's accomplished, you know, what, what he did, or but, I'm sorry, but how he accomplished what he did with, with constant health problems is beyond impressive to me. Like he almost died with scarlet fever as a toddler, uh, had many more brushes with death after that throughout his life. While he was at Harvard, he was continually traveling back to the Mayo Clinic to deal with relentless intestinal problems, abdominal pain, spastic colon, ulcers, low weight. His back is messed up again, uh, you know, made worse by the war. His first back operation was 1944, where the surgeons had removed some abnormally soft disc interspace material and anticipated additional problems if he continued to suffer bone loss because they discovered, you know, early signs of osteoporosis. Uh, Early in his political career in the late 1940s, he also began showing symptoms of Addison's disease, a disorder that occurs when your body produces insufficient amounts of certain hormones produced by your adrenal glands. In Addison's disease, your adrenal glands produce too little cortisol and often insufficient levels of uh, aldotestosterone, uh, aldosterone, excuse me, as well. Symptoms can include extreme fatigue, weight loss, decreased appetite, darkening of your skin, hyperpigmentation, low blood pressure, even fainting, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, muscle and joint pains, irritability, depression, pain in your lower back, abdomen, or legs, severe vomiting, diarrhea, and a bunch of other horrible stuff. And Jack did pass out uh, from time to time. Once he passed out at a parade in Boston in 1946 while running for a seat in Congress. And then by 1951, his back was getting so bad, uh, x-rays revealed that there was uh, clear compression fractures fractures in his lower spine. He needed crutches to get up a flight of stairs from time to time uh, when his back was really bad. And now early in his career as a senator, his back pain becomes almost unbearable. Uh, his fifth lumbar vertebrae uh, collapses. Uh, he couldn't bend to put a left sock or put a sock on, onto his left foot. He had to ascend and descend stairs moving sideways now. Uh, no one, and again, no one knows why his back was so bad. Probably um, a degenerative back condition he was just born with. And man, he had to deal with so much as he's going into his political career. October 21st, 1954, he has a spinal fusion surgery, almost kills him. Uh, a metal plate was inserted to stabilize Kennedy's lower spine. Afterward, a urinary tract infection puts his life in jeopardy. Yeah, he's probably, probably boned 17 of the nurses to get that little, who knows. Uh, he went into a coma. And once again, a, a priest was called to administer last rites. Uh, he'd been getting last rites read to him since he was a kid. By December, Kennedy had shaken the infection, was sufficiently recovered to be moved to the family's Palm Beach home. Nevertheless, he remained far from well. Doctors couldn't promise he would ever walk again. Moreover, uh, there was reason to believe that the side of the plate was infected. So in February, another operation was performed at New York Hospital to remove the plate. Oh, my God. The records show that it extracted it meant removing uh, three screws that had been drilled into his bones and replacing damaged cartilage with a bone graft. After another three months recuperating in Florida, Kennedy returns to Washington in May. Men had to have been terrible. Uh, I had back surgery when I was 28, a lumbar microdisectomy after herniating a disc, doing something stupid, I'm sure. Had sciatic in my, in my left leg for a few years. Still get it from time to time. Uh, get pain if I don't stretch regularly. And, and I thought I had a bad. Man, my back is made out of fucking titanium compared to JFK's back. They told me the spinal fusion was the next step if my back got worse, uh, but there's risk, risk with a fusion that it can put unnatural pressure on your healthy discs and start wearing them out, and it limits mobility. 
can be a source of pain in and of itself. I can't imagine getting a metal plate screwed in, some sort of old school fusion, then having that bastard pulled back off of your spine. No wonder he was supposedly taking a ton of medication every day. Uh, Medical records reveal Kennedy uh, variously took codeine, Demerol, methadone for pain, uh, Ritalin, uh, meprobabate, uh, and Librium for anxiety, barbiturates for sleep, barbiturates for sleep, thyroid hormone, and injections of a blood derivative, uh, gamma globulin, a medicine that combats infections. So luckily for his political ambitions, public awareness of uh, uh, his surgery and all these other problems, uh, rather than undermine his image, uh, made him look courageous. So, you know, I guess that's good. 1956, John and Jackie had a miscarriage, uh, and while recovering from one of his many hospitalization bouts, he found time to write Profiles and Courage that year. The 1977 Pulitzer Prize-winning volume of short biographies describing acts of bravery and integrity by eight U.S. senators. The book profiles senators who defied the opinions of their party and constituents to do what they felt was right and suffered severe criticism and losses in popularity because of those actions. While ghostwriter Ted Sorison... Uh, an American lawyer, writer, presidential advisor, and JFK speechwriter may have done most of the writing. Jack, at the very least, supervised it. Might as well win a Pulitzer Prize while you heal. No big whoop. Got it. It's like it's like we're the same person. I, I remember kicking some serious ass on, on Madden 2016 once on the PS4 when I had a, a bad cold. You know, I beat the computer by like seven touchdowns. <laughs> I get it. It's like we're the same. Uh, he also got some shit done in Washington. Uh, Kennedy's legislative interests, uh, while in the Senate, uh, primarily were in foreign affairs and labor fields. He was the chairman of the Labor Subcommittee, was his chief Senate sponsor of labor reform legislation in 1958, 1955. Uh, he worked to increase the minimum wage, fought to investigate labor union corruption from 56 to 57, served on the special committee to investigate lobbying proposed on July 20 uh, or July 2nd 1957 that the US support Algeria's effort to gain independence from France actively supported anti-segregation and civil rights legislation when you look into his voting records and overall political focus he seemed to be a champion of the little guy uh, who fought institutional corruption you know someone who would fight big business leaders and their lobbyists he took that wealthy privileged upbringing and used his powers for good instead of just you know just jerking off on his family's fortune Again, the more I research him, the more I understand why so many people loved him. I mean, I, many people still love him still, you know? I understand why so many women slept with him. I, I kind of want to sleep with him now, or at least be hit on by him. You know, that's normal, right? 1957, Jackie, his wife, gives birth to their first uh, child who, you know, lives outside of infancy, uh, Caroline Kennedy, the only Kennedy child still living today, a Harvard grad, Columbia Law School grad, and the U.S. ambassador to Japan from 2013 to earlier uh, this year in 2017. In 1960, John and Jackie have a son, John Jr. Uh, he'd become a New York City assistant district attorney for four years, launched George Magazine in 1995. Uh, he was I remember him when I was a kid, women think he was a big hunk. Uh, he died in a plane crash with his wife in 1999. He was also the last child of Jack, uh, Jack and Jackie would have that survived in infancy. They had a second son in 1963, Patrick, who was born five and a half weeks premature and died two days uh, later of breathing complications. Man, triumph and tragedy. The dude's life was full of so much of both. Also in 1960, uh, Kennedy beats Richard Nixon to win the presidency in one of the closest presidential elections uh, in the U.S. in the 20th century. In the national popular vote, by most accounts, Kennedy led Nixon Nixon by just two-tenths of one percent, 49.7 to 49.5, while in the Electoral College, he won 303 votes to Nixon's 219. 
Uh, 14 electors from Mississippi and Alabama refused to support Kennedy because of his support for the civil rights movement. Uh, they voted uh, for Senator Harry F. Byrd of Virginia, as did an elector from, from Oklahoma. Uh, Kennedy became the youngest person ever elected to the presidency, uh, though Theodore Roosevelt was slightly younger when he took office after William McKinley's death in 1901. And he did a bunch of good shit as president. Let's talk about his presidential accomplishments for a little bit here. He improved the economy. Uh, the U.S. was in a recession when Kennedy took office. He carried out various measures to boost the economy under his own uh, executive anti-recessionary acceleration program. Among other things, the most significant tax reforms since the New Deal were carried out, including a new investment tax credit, uh, GDP, which had grown by an average of only 2.2% per, an per annum uh, during his predecessor, Eisenhower's presidency expanded by an average of 5.5% from early 1961 to late 1963 when Kennedy was assassinated. Also, inflation remained steady at around 1%. Industrial production rose to 15% by about 15% and unemployment decreased. This rate of growth continued until 1969. It hasn't been repeated for such a sustained period since. Uh, he established the Peace Corps. President John F. Kennedy established the Peace Corps on March 1st, 1961 by Executive Order 10924. It was a program through which American volunteers would help underdeveloped nations in areas such as education, farming, health care, construction. The organization grew uh, to 5,000 members by March 1963, 10,000 the following year. Since its formation uh, to 2016, around 220,000 Americans have joined the Peace Corps and served in uh, 140 countries. Its initiatives include uh, eradicating malaria in Africa and responding to crises like the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And I'll start with JFK. I did not know that. Uh, he furthered civil rights reforms. Kennedy supported racial integration and civil rights throughout his uh, you know, presidency and his speeches. On March 6, 1961, he signed Executive Order 10925, which required government contractors to take affirmative action to ensure all employees are treated equally irrespective of their race, creed, color, or national origin. His Executive Order 11063 on November 1962 banned segregation in federally funded housing. On June 11, 1963, he gave his famous civil rights address calling Americans to recognize civil rights as a moral cause. His proposal to provide equal access to public schools and other facilities and greater protection of voting rights became part of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, yeah, after, after his death there. On, on, on uh, June 10, 1963, John F. Kennedy uh, signed uh, into law the Equal Pay Act of 1963 uh, to abolish wage disparity uh, based on sex. It amended the existing Fair Labor Standards Acts of 1938. The uh, Equal Pay Act was a major step towards closing the wage gap in women's pay. And although EPA's equal pay for equal work goals have not been completely achieved, women's salaries vis-a-vis -vis, uh, men's have risen dramatically since its enactment. JFK also proposed an overhaul of American immigration policy that would later lead to the Immigration and National Nationality Act of 1965 that abolished the quota system based on national origins with a preference system that focused on the immigrant skills and family relationships with U.S. citizens. Uh, he did some Supreme Court nominations. Uh, he, he appointed to Supreme Court uh, Byron Wizard White and Arthur Goldberg. Uh, Byron White was a goddamn American hero. Uh, he was a high school valedictorian, football star at the University of Colorado, Rhodes Scholar, NFL halfback who led the league in rushing two of the only three seasons he played. And he was awarded two bronze stars in the Navy during World War II where he worked as an intelligence officer. Then he went to law school. Instead of playing more football when he got back to the States, graduated mag magna cum laude from Yale. Does anyone live like this anymore? My God. Holy shit, there used to be some manly men. Uh, he controversially uh, voted against, though, uh, Roe versus Wade, one of the two dissenting Supreme Court justices voting against a woman's right to have an abortion. Yeah, of course he did. JFK picked him. 
and, and as progressive as he may have been in some ways, JFK was also a lifelong Catholic. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, Catholics were not pro-choice. Uh, they were pro-touching little boys. Just kidding, Catholic listeners, kind of. Uh, White was, however, strictly against segregation. He, he dissented in Runyon versus McCrary, uh, 1976, for example, which held that federal law prohibited private schools from discriminating on the basis of race. Arthur Goldberg, on the other hand, dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. Some bullshit, some wishy-washy bullshit about helping his family survive after his father dies. Whatever, loser. You couldn't hack it. You couldn't hack it. And then because he was working to support his family, uh, he ended up attending several colleges before getting his law degree from Northwestern, uh, where he wasn't good at football. Let's make a note of that. He was no wizard white. Guess JFK felt sorry for him. Or appointed him because he was a self-made man who fought for the working class his entire career, becoming a prominent labor rights lawyer, and then being appointed to JFK's cabinet as a U.S. Secretary of Labor before being appointed to the Supreme Court. He served on the court only three years, though, uh, most notably voicing extreme opposition to the death penalty. He saw it as barbaric. Uh, probably didn't like watching football either. Ha! <laughs> Whatever, you fucking wimp. Uh, and then uh, LBJ appointed him to serve as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Okay, so so two cool dudes there. Uh, JFK did a whole lot more than appoint two Supreme, Supreme Court justices and the work I've already listed. Far too much to get into. And this is already going to be a long episode. More importantly, uh, he helped prevent World War III, which ironically may have got him killed. And assassination theory we'll dive very deep into later. Uh, he sought an end to the Cold War. He, along with Soviet leader uh, Nikita Khrushchev, or Khrushchev, uh, kept the Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pigs situation from turning into one giant global nuclear annihilation. A commencement speech he made at American University on John t- June 10th, 1963, made it clear he was rethinking America's stance regarding the Cold War with communism. Uh, rather than nuke her opponents into oblivion, maybe America should try, you know, work with her enemies. Maybe give peace a chance. Much of the American public loved his new attitude. Uh, Declassified documents reveal he was strongly considering if he hadn't already outright decided to withdraw from Vietnam. Uh, He was not interested in a war with Cuba, was not interested in a war with Soviets, did not want to nuke anyone. He was more interested in letting uh, go of European colonialism and letting uh, African nations, for example, uh, govern themselves instead of being ran by puppet regimes, you know, set up by the CEA and big business. And maybe that's what got him killed, you know? 1963 before he could, uh, you know, win re-election and then enact, you know, some bold new legislation in this area. Or maybe Lee Os- you know, Oswald. Maybe Lee Harvey Oswald was a goddamn superhero with a rifle. But before we get into some possibilities of what may have happened to him in Dallas, uh, 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, possibilities that we will uh, dig further into, into some of his policies and political ideology. Let's hop out of this timeline. Let's talk about his affairs a little bit. Let's, get, let's go with Star Magazine. Let's get, his, let's get his lady hunting out of the way before we go uh, full conspiracy theory nut. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, full disclosure again. This is all, for the most part, rumor and hearsay. Uh, but it's rumor and hearsay from sources who are either allegedly involved themselves, such as the women, or from sources close to the president. In addition to having a variety of health problems, uh, the dude may have also been a sex addict. Clearly, he didn't let his severe back problems, colitis, Addison's disease, etc., etc., uh, stand in the way of his unquenchable thirst for sexual conquest. So let's start with a, an affair you, you, you may not have heard of. I did not. Uh, let's start with Marlene Dietrich. She was a German-born actress whose film Blue Angel made her a sex symbol in 1930. That's right, 1930. The film was Germany's f- first uh, full-length talkie feature, 
And I think this is interesting. It was shot both in English and in German, which may, must have been a lot of fun for the actors. Uh, she moved to Hollywood shortly after that film debuted, lived with Mercedes de Acosta, a well-known lesbian socialite she also had an affair with. That woman supposedly uh, had an affair with Greta Garbo. Scandals. Scandalous for the time. Uh, Marlene was uh, married to a director named Rudolf Sieber, but even though they had a child together, it was an open marriage and one of convenience, and biographers actually likened their relationship more to one of siblings and lovers after the birth of their first child, or the only child. Uh, Marlene would allegedly go on to have affairs with Cary Grant, Randolph Scott, John Wayne, Douglas Fairbanks, that original screen actor to play Robin Hood, James Stewart, uh, later Hollywood producer Joe Kennedy, JFK's dad, remember? He had dabbled in some Hollywood business. And then years later, when she was 60 years old, 60 and still sexy as fuck, she slept with JFK in the White House. Sleeping with the former mistress of his dad's. I wonder if he knew. He must have knew. He must have heard the rumors. That's some perv shit right there. She'd later say of the affairs, I think he was even faster than his father. He had an even busier schedule. They both kept their watches on. She was in D.C. in September 1963, performing a one-woman show when JFK, 20 years her junior, made what she referred to as a clumsy pass at her in a bedroom near the West sitting room. Her performance uh, was in a half an hour, and uh, (laughs) Kennedy replied, that doesn't give us much time, does it? Uh, she later told Gore Vidal that her initial reaction of, you know, Mr. President, I'm not very young, eventually became, don't muss my hair, I'm performing. It was over in 20 minutes, and when JFK started to fall asleep, Dietrich shook him awake because she didn't know how to get out of the White House. Well, do you think w- while he was having sex, he thought something like, I'm going to make you come so much harder than my dad did? <laughs> Even better if he would have asked her after they were done. So that was good, right? Was it, was it, like, was it like my dad good or, or better than my dad good? So messed up. So weird. Uh, so JFK uh, clearly didn't uh, mind some kinky stuff, uh, didn't mind a mature woman. He also didn't mind him young, like Mimi Alford, a White House intern. A few days after 19-year-old Mimi Alford started her internship in the White House uh, press, office, pr- press office, <clears throat> excuse me, she met JFK while taking a midday dip in the White House pool. He swam up, introduced himself, and later that day sent word that she was invited to after-work drinks. JFK offered to uh, give her a private tour of the house which culminated in his seducing her, ironically, in uh, what he referred to as Mrs. Kennedy's room. That's messed up. Uh, In her memoir, she writes that uh, she was in shock after the encounter, which was her first time having sex. Uh, He, on the other hand, was matter-of-fact and acted as if uh, what we did was the most natural thing in the world. Uh, It was the start of an 18-month affair in which she never called him Jack, only Mr. President. (laughs) Uh, In her memoir, uh, Alfred writes that JFK dared her once successfully into giving oral sex to Dave Powers, a White House aide in the pool, as he watched. Wow! Taking a 19-year-old intern's virginity, then daring her a little bit later into blowing another dude while you watch. That, that's what she wrote in her memoir. God damn. And Bill Clinton, <clears throat> excuse me, almost got impeached for getting himself a blowjob from a 22-year-old intern. In addition to a lot of health problems, JFK also apparently had a giant pair of brass fucking balls to do the shit he did. I knew he was a slut, but I didn't realize he was such a perv, too. Uh, and then, of course, there's a Time Suck episode 32 topic, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe first met the president. February of 1962, when she was invited to a New York dinner party in his honor, where he greeted her with, finally, you're here. He got her number before she left and invited her to Palm Springs the next month, where he added his wife would not be joining him. They spent a week shacked up at Bing Crosby's house in the desert town, which, according to various sources, was the extent of the affair. Monroe, however, desperately wanted more and saw herself as a second first lady, uh, even calling Jackie and telling her about the affair, according to these few precious days, the final year of Jack with Jackie. Uh, Jackie, no stranger to her husband's infidelities, reportedly <laughs> responded sarcastically, we assume, Marilyn, you'll marry Jack, that's great, and you'll move into the White House, and you'll assume the responsibilities of First Lady, and I'll move out, and you'll have all my problems. 
Uh, and if you've listened to episode 32, you know there's a theory that JFK may have conspired to kill her, uh, Marilyn, uh, before she held a press conference about his affair, his affair, hurting his chances of re-election. Might be a wild conspiracy. Might be a dude who wasn't about to let one of his many, many conquests bring down his political career. And then uh, he also liked a bad girl. There was Judith Campbell Exner. She was an ex of Sinatra's, Frank Sinatra's, who would go on to become the mistress of my boss, Sam Giancana. The president met Exner in 1960 at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, where Sinatra was performing. She wrote in her memoir that uh, uh, memoir that he paid attention only to her. It was as if uh, every nerve and muscle in his whole body was poised at attention. Uh, as I was to learn, Jack Kennedy was the world's greatest listener. Well, according to investigative reporter Seymour Horsch, uh, Exner ferried envelopes from JFK to the mob, alleged payoffs or instructions for vote buying in elections. Uh, she says, Jack never in a million years thought he was doing anything that would hurt me, but that's the way he conducted himself. The Kennedys have their own set of rules, she said. Uh, Jack was reckless, so reckless, she also said. And, and she also claimed to uh, have aborted JFK's child. And, and here I thought he was a good Catholic. Uh, and he also didn't mind a professional lover. There was Ellen uh, Romich, a German prostitute. And in 1963, uh, he shit on her chest. He dropped the old Oval Office steamer on old Romich. No. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. Uh, for some reason, though, uh, when I think of German prostitute, I think of people getting sh shit on. I think I heard too many rumors of German pornos, like Shiza films or something, where people get shit on. I don't know. I heard about them growing up. Uh, apparently, the 27-year-old uh, from East Germany was an Elizabeth Taylor lookalike uh, and had been a budding communist there before fleeing to the U.S. She ended up as a call girl uh, in some ring called the Quorum Club, located a, uh, a three-room three suite at the Carroll arms hotel just across the street from the new senate office building she attended naked naked pool parties at the white house in the spring of 1963 and on more than one occasion came to the residence explicitly to have sex with the president in august of that year uh, bobby kennedy reportedly arranged for her to be deported though fearing what might leak to the press in advance of jfk's upcoming campaign for re-election and he wasn't opposed to leaving with a friend like Mary Pinchot Meyer, socialite. Uh, Meyer was a longtime friend of the president who first met him at a prep school dance in 1938. Uh, she married, would eventually divorce a CIA agent, and had a sister who was married to Washington Post editor Ben Bradley. Uh, both ties put her in Kennedy's social circle in D.C. She visited him frequently at the White House. It was known to be one of his many mistresses, uh, according to biographer Nina Berlay. She was also a vocal pacifist as well as a friend of Harvard LSD guru, Timothy Leary. That's probably a good time suck topic, Timothy Leary. Uh, these facts were instrumental in a conspiracy theory about her death uh, having been ordered by officials who didn't want the president influenced by her views because Meyer was shot execution style in October 1964 while walking in Georgetown, a crime that is still unsolved. He also liked uh, burlesque dancers, like sultry redhead Blaze Starr. Who doesn't like burlesque dancers, really? Uh, the famed burlesque dancer met JFK in 1954 when he was a congressman who paid visits to her Maryland strip club, Crossroads, uh, on a 1989 publicity tour for the movie Blaze. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Uh, she described JFK's sexual performance as very quick and very wild and generously added that he knew exactly what he was doing with girls so it didn't take him long. No, that bad back didn't face him. Uh, she eventually was uh, invited to the White House in 1962, but said their impending role in the Hay was interrupted by the drama of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, my one big chance for the Lincoln Room, and I didn't get it, she'd say. Well, you did get to sleep with the president, which I, which I think is quite an accomplishment uh, for anyone going by the name of Blaze. And then uh, he liked women who happened to be nearby, too. Uh, like Pamela Turnier, his wife, Jackie's press secretary, his wife's fucking press secretary, and also a woman who resembled Jackie. Not even the First Lady's staff was immune to the roving eye of this president. And Turnier, a Georgetown girl who is said to resemble Jackie, again, like I said, reportedly trysted with him from 1961 to 1963, beginning when she was 21. Dude was an animal. Apparently he just needed to constantly sleep with somebody. 
Uh, he also supposedly had an affair with a young Swedish socialite, Gania von Post, just a few weeks before his wedding. Dude. This guy did no morals when it came to fucking fidelity. Uh, the young Swede was 21 when she met the 36-year-old JFK in the French Riviera, where they spent a flirty evening during which she wrote in her memoir in 1997, he turned and kissed me tenderly and my breath was taken away. Uh, the two kept in touch. Two years later, the president managed to meet up with Von Post again, this time ending up in bed with her. I was relatively inexperienced, and Jack's tenderness was a revelation. He said, Gunia, we've waited two years for this. It seems almost too good to be true, and I want to make you happy. In her book, she alleged that JFK called his father and told him he wanted to divorce, uh, wanted to divorce Jackie and marry Gania, only to be told he'd destroy his political career by doing so, and it ended that night. Uh, is that why he cheated on Jackie so much? Was it a marriage kind of, you know, made for the public eye? Was it one kind of steered by the their, their family? Not one built on passion? I don't know. You know, maybe. But if half the rumors uh, about his sex page are true, I don't think there's a woman on earth who could have kept this dude faithful. And there were so many others. Uh, Academy Award-nominated leading you know, Lady Jean Tierney, White House Secretaries Priscilla Ware and Jill Cowan, and probably one of your great aunts, uh, definitely a few of your moms, and many of your grandmas. Let's face it, there's a pretty good chance you're Kennedy. I'd like to think I'm at least quarter Kennedy. My grandma on my dad's side was Irish. JFK was Irish. They were both uh, around the same age. She was good looking when she was you know, a young, young lady. They lived in the same country. So I'm going to go with JFK's probably my grandpa. All right, so now we little uh, we know a little bit about JFK the politician, JFK the man. Clearly wasn't a great husband, but he was a great man in many respects. A war hero, politician who fought for the working class. But that's not why you're listening. That's not why you're listening. I know that. Rightly or wrongly, what he's most known for is getting killed. So let's look into a few assassination theories in this first part of the two-part JFK uh, time suck. And first, I think we need to examine the possibility that the Warren Commission came up with, which is that Oswald killed Kennedy. So as we look at Oswald... Uh, we first need to explain what the Warren Commission was. It was a committee that determined his guilt. The Warren Commission was the unofficial name for the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy, established by former Time Suck Topic, Episode 15, President Lyndon B. Johnson, through Executive Order 11130 on November 29, 1963, again, to investigate the assassination of Kennedy. The commission took its unofficial name, the Warren Commission, from its chairman, Chief Justice Earl Warren, and they published their findings nearly a year later in September 1964. And the Warren Commission decided that Oswald fired three shots from a book depository 80 yards away from Kennedy's car from the sixth floor. First off, let's just state for the record that hitting a target from 80 yards away is far from impossible. No one in their right mind disputes that a shot from that distance could have, in fact, been made. Even on a moving target, JFK's Lincoln was traveling approximately 12 miles an hour, not too fast for a sniper to hit him, not too fast at all. So let's just establish for certain that a man standing in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, now known as the Dallas County Administration Building at 411 Elm Street on the northwest corner of Elm and North Houston Streets, a building facing Dealey Plaza, could, in theory, shoot President Kennedy. Okay, it could have happened. Uh, wouldn't have been an easy shot, though. And the shooter's ability to get three shots off with a 6.5 millimeter Carcano rifle in roughly five seconds, very much disputed. Some claim you can do it in less time than that. Uh, many claim uh, no one could fire that fast and that accurately with that particular rifle. Now, okay, so let, let's, let's look at some evidence, though, for it being Oswald. Penn and Teller uh, made an interesting case for Oswald committing the assassination with that classical show there's bullshit. Uh, in one episode, they talked about a bullet hitting Kennedy from the back, like Oswald supposedly did, according to the Warren Commission, and how a bullet hitting his head from behind could actually pull his head back because of the force of the brain matter pushed out of the front of his head. Uh, that force of, of his brain matter kind of shooting out could propel his head back towards where the bullet entered, in theory is what they say. They demonstrated with the melon, and you can find a video of it on YouTube if you're curious. Uh, 
So basically, they think the whole back into the left movement of Kennedy's head when he got shot could prove that the shooter was in fact shooting him from behind where Oswald was instead of proving that the shooter was in front on the grassy knoll uh, like many many conspiracy theorists claim. But those two are also magicians and not weapons experts. So, you know, there's that to consider. Uh, there's also graphic artist Dale Myers, who had been studying the Zapruder film for 25 years. Uh, he reconstructed the Zapruder film uh, frame by frame with computer simulation to show that the magic bullet theory flaunted by conspiracy theorists is wrong. Now, the magic bullet theory is basically a theory that in order for one bullet to hit both Kennedy and Governor Colony in the places the Warren Commission claims it did, a bullet would have to freeze in midair turn 90 degrees amongst other impossible movements that defy the laws of physics in order to move where the Warren Commission says it moved. The Zapruder film, by the way, is a silent color motion picture sequence shot by private citizen Abraham Zapruder with home movie camera, with a home movie camera, uh, as U.S. President John F. Kennedy's motorcade passed by him in Daly Plaza uh, in Dallas that day. And he unexpectedly, you know, captured the president's assassination. However, because Governor Colony was seated below Kennedy, jump seat was three inches lower, and because he didn't sit directly in front of him, but instead a little bit to the left, and because his body was angled, he was kind of turned back, you know, slightly, Dale Meyer shows that the magic bullet didn't have to zigzag or stop in midair, as conspiracy theorists uh, have stated, in order to hit both Kennedy and the Texas governor. It tears through both men in a perfectly straight line that points straight back to the book depository window where Oswald was. Case closed, right? And that's it. Let's wrap it up. Uh Uh-uh. Many don't agree with Penn, Teller, or this Dale Myers dude. So let's look at some evidence against Oswald being the lone gunman or even a gunman at all that day. All right, Zapruder wasn't the only man to be filming that day. Another man was Orville Nix, and he filmed on the opposite side of the street as Zapruder with the infamous grassy knoll seen behind Kennedy as the car passes by. And he thought in his footage he filmed a second gunman. We've all heard about the infamous second gunman on the grassy knoll, right? Well, Nix claimed that a week after the assassination, he passed a copy of his film to the FBI, sold the original to the UPI press agency for five grand. The Warren Report did use his film in their investigation along with Zapruder's. Then, somehow, the original film goes missing. Nix's granddaughter, Gail Nix Jackson, thinks the government got a hold of the original and sued the U.S. government to try and get the original returned to her in 2015. Well, the copy was returned to Orville Nix after the Warren report was done with it, but Orville claimed before his death in 1972 that frames were missing from it. He also claimed that he thought the shots had come from the Grassy Knoll area that day, and most everyone thought the same as him. Well, why would Nixon or Nix say that? Why would Richard Nixon say it? Richard Nixon shot JFK. Fucking time suck over. No. Why would Nix ever have made this claim? Seems very suspicious to me. Very suspicious. And uh, there was also a a recent uh, interesting study uh, that uh, might also kind of lead people to believe that a shot fired from the legendary grassy knoll could have happened 38 years ago. Could have been the bullet that killed JFK. Uh, According to a 2016 acoustical study, that's right, a sound study, uh, it was completed in 2016, the gunshot-like sounds occur exactly synchronous with the time of the shooting, writes Donald Thomas, author of the report, which was peer-reviewed and published in Science and Justice, a journal of Britain's Forensic Science Society. Conspiracy theorists for years have questioned the findings of investigators who concluded that Kennedy was felled by shots from a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, fired from the perch above the president's motorcade. This study bolsters that scrutiny by pinpointing a gunshot-like sound from a grassy knoll to the right of the motorcade and timing it to when the president was killed. The study analyzes recordings made on two separate police channels on the day of the assassination in 1963. One was recorded when a motorcycle policeman in the president's motorcade inadvertently left a microphone on his vehicle switched on. 
Analysis of this channel later reveals a gunshot-like sound coming from the region of the grassy knoll. The second channel recorded uh, routine transmissions from the lead car in the motorcade that was driven directly in front of the pastor's limousine. Again, uh, all of this seems very suspicious. And then there's also those who have claimed to be the second gunman, like James Earl Files, who in the 1994 prison interview claimed to have shot Kennedy. He says there was collusion between the mafia and the CIA to kill 46-year-old Kennedy. Uh, claims, uh, you know, that could lead him uh, being called at the time, they thought, to give testimony uh, on oath in Washington. That never happened, though. But the Vietnam War veteran was part of the CIA team that trained a militia for the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba in 1961, he claims, uh, which turned uh, many in the agency against Kennedy when he called a sudden halt to the clandestine operation. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me, after being kicked out of the military, files joined the outfit in Chicago, becoming a right-hand man to Mafia chief Charles Chucky Nicoletti a hitman for the Chicago mob, bo mob boss, Sam Giancana. Remember him from allegations that JFK slept with his girl before she became his girl? Uh, Files said he also reported uh, to a now-dead CIA handler, Files, uh, who is serving time for being an accessory to a mob murder, claims that CIA men felt betrayed over the Bay of Pigs fiasco and feared Kennedy was going to shut the agency down because it was out of control. They called in mobsters to carry out the killing in Dallas. Files claims ex-Marine misfit Lee Harvey Oswald teamed up with him in Dallas where they fired weapons together and checked out positions at the Dealey Plaza where Oswald worked at the Texas School Book Depository Building. On the morning of the assassination, Files says he was joined by Nicoletti, who took up a sniper's position with another mafioso, Johnny Roselli, in the Daltex office building near the book depository. Files, a backup shooter, says he took up position behind a fence at the top of the infamous grassy knoll. Mercury uh, and the tip of the fatal bullet would make it explode on impact. His instructions were to go for a headshot if Kennedy had not been hit by the time the cavalcade came into his view. Files told Dankbar, it is interviewing him, I fired one shot and one shot only. Mr. Nicoletti hit him as I squeezed off my round. I hit him and it blew the head backwards. That's what he says. Now again, Nick hasn't been paid much attention to, even by most assassination conspiracy theorists, but he brings up an excellent point about the CIA being afraid he was going to shut them down, which we're going to dig uh, deeply into in part two of this JFK time suck. And then you have the book Dead Wrong. Uh, this is by, by best-selling historical author David Wayne, actor and former comic Richard Belzer, uh, best known for his role as John Munch on the NBC police drama series Homicide, Life on the Street and Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. Well, they wrote a book on their take on a variety of controversial uh, alleged death cover-ups, one of which is the JFK conspiracy uh, in this book Dead Wrong. And in it, they state that multiple witnesses saw the, in saw the intact entry hole high in the right forehead at the hairline and sworn testimony of the emergency room doctors in Dallas confirms an additional frontal entry wound in the president's throat. They quote Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, military liaison to the CIA for clandestine operations, is saying Oswald was a patsy. There's no question about it. Um, they claim Oswald was a CIA operative, quoting William Robert Plumley, former military intelligence operative and CIA special ops pilot, is saying... That's not an allegation. That's a fact. Oswald was military intelligence. They also claim to have evidence that two separate bullets hit JFK in the head. They say that Dr. Joseph Riley, PhD in neuroscience and neuroanatomy, independently concluded that John was struck in the head by two bullets, one from the front and one from the rear. And they say Dr. Randy Robertson, uh, MD, also independently came up to the same conclusion, saying in sum, it is a medical and scientific fact that the damage done to the president's skull did not result from a single shot, but instead was caused by two bullets. And uh, they reference a shitload of other doctors apparently coming to the same conclusion. They also reference eyewitnesses claiming that the gunshots came from the grassy knoll, like Thomas L. Johns, assistant to the special agent in charge, vice presidential detail secret service, saying the first two shots sounded like they were on the right side of me towards the grassy knoll. Uh, 
They have quotes from investigators claiming that no eyewitness ever saw Oswald in the depository with the gun in his hand. They asked why, if Oswald was a communist agent obsessed with killing Kennedy, why didn't he confess when he was apprehended? Why did he instead deny involvement? They point out that Oswald only achieved a level of marksman when he was trained by the Marines, an accuracy level lower than both expert and sharpshooter. They quote Gunnery Sergeant Carlos Hathcock, Senior Instructor Quantico, U.S. Marine Corps Sniper Instruction School, as saying, now if I can't do it, referring to the kill shot, how in the world could a guy who was a non-qual on the rifle range and later only qualified as a marksman do it? And they claim all kinds of other footnoted information, that ballistics testing did not incriminate Oswald anyway, that the sight on the alleged merger weapon wasn't even properly aligned, that Oswald's fingerprints weren't on the rifle, that no gunfire residue was found on Oswald's cheek, etc. They list government memos basically asserting a cover-up of some kind, that someone inside the government was responsible and Oswald needed to be blamed to prevent public outcry. They make connections between the CIA and Oswald, and the CIA and Jack Ruby, the man who shot Oswald, and between the CIA, the mafia, and Jack Ruby. Lots of declassified documents, excerpts, lots of quotes from military and or government agency personnel. So there's lots of evidence being thrown around by those who believe Oswald shot Kennedy and those who didn't. And amongst those uh, who don't believe Oswald did it, uh, there are a ton of theories about why JFK was killed. You know, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination in 2013, a Gallup poll was taken to see uh, which U.S. Uh, you know what U.S. citizens believed uh, concerning Kennedy. Uh, only 30% of those polled believed Oswald acted alone and killed Kennedy from that depository window. Gallup polls about the assassination were taken every few years since Kennedy died, and no more than 36 percent of people ever polled ever believed Oswald acted alone. From 1975 to 1991, only 10% of Americans believed Oswald acted alone. That's very low. Uh, 13% of Americans told Gallup pollsters in 2013 they believed the mafia was behind the killing. Uh, or did the government do it? 13% uh, of Kennedy conspirators uh, believe so, according to Gallup. Uh, just they don't, it, it was kind of a vague government. Could be anyone. Some people believe Lyndon B. Johnson had something to do with it, that he ordered him dead. Uh, <laughs> the, the CIA, 7% of conspiracy-loving Americans blame the CIA for Kennedy's death. Uh, this theory is perhaps even more popular in the 60s and 70s as Americans became aware that the CIA really had plotted to assassinate Vietnam's president, uh, No Dean Dem, uh, successfully, and Cuba's Fidel Castro unsuccessfully after the failed pigs, or Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, Cuba in 1961. And they knew that the Kennedy and CIA were on rough terms, leading them to believe the CIA had something to do with it. Uh, people who believe Cuba did it? You know, what about Castro himself? Uh, he certainly had a reason to be unhappy with the Kennedy administration because of the uh, plots on his life. Uh, and then some uh, other people also believed that uh, Castro's enemies had something to do with it. You know, Cuban exiles who hoped to reclaim their homeland from Castro's communist government had their hopes dashed when the CIA-backed Bay of Pigs invasion failed. And some blamed Kennedy for botching the operation. And then there's uh, 5% of Americans uh, who, who believed uh, when they were polled uh, that uh, some political opponents did it. Maybe some uh, unnamed political opponent. Another 5% say uh, some unknown special interest group may have been responsible. Some are more specific. According to Gallup's recent polling, 2% blame big business or big oil. 1% say labor unions or Teamsters. Another 1% say right-wing political operatives like the KKK could have done it. Lots of potential people. Um, Lee R.V. Oswald uh, was a defector of the Soviet Union, uh, leading some people uh, to believe that the Russia had something to do with it. Uh, Oswald did live in the USSR from 1959 to 1962, and according to some conspiracy believers, uh, he was brainwashed or simply recruited to assassinate the president during this time. The Soviet conspiracy's motivation is said to be Nikita Khrushchev's anger at having to remove weapons from Cuba in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. 
there's people who think the military-industrial complex was behind it. Could the war in Vietnam have indirectly caused Kennedy's death? 1% of American conspiracy believers uh, think so, Gallup reports. According to the military-industrial complex con uh, conspiracy theory, Kennedy intended to pull the U.S. military out of Vietnam. Shadowy forces in the military resented the impending decision and had him killed. Oliver Stone's popular conspiracy film, JFK, pushes that theory, arguing that Kennedy's assassination was a military coup designed to put the war-friendly Johnson in office. Uh, there's those that think the Secret Service had something to do with it. The Secret Service, tasked with prote protecting the president, uh, ensured his death instead, as this theory goes. About 1% of conspiracy believers polled by Gallup in this uh, 50th anniversary uh, poll uh, blamed yeah, the Secret Service. According to this theory, anti-Kennedy agents in the service had no interest in protecting him from shots. Conspiracy theorists also find it suspicious that certain security measures, such as agents near the rear bumper of the car, weren't in place that day in Dallas. Both the Warren Commission and the House Select uh, Committee on Assassinations cleared the Secret Service, but the House Committee determined that agents were at least deficient in their duties. Uh, and finally, in a totally separate poll, uh, not conducted by Gallup, 100% uh, of one person not previously polled believes that Bojangles may have fired the fatal bullet. Lee Harvey Oswald was not in that depository window. Instead, it was Michael motherfucking McDonald, Grammy award-winning vocalist, CIA operative, white-haired angel, and time traveler sent to wherever he's needed to fight communism, and JFK was getting soft on the pinkos, and Triple M wasn't having it. McDonald fired the rifle from the window as Yamo B there, tag team songwriting and singing partner, and FBI informant, and vagina whisperer James Ingram awaited on the grassy knoll, with three-legged, one-eyed, genetically modified Bojangles, mutt of mayhem, lying in the grass with his modified prosthetic fourth leg uh, turned into a gun, beaded down on that Lincoln convertible. As JFK approached, those sons of bitches waited minute by minute by minute by minute until McDonald fired, missing his target, and then Bojangles and Ingram popped up from the grassy knoll and fired one shot each, the first into JFK's neck and the second into his skull, and no one wants to come forward because of the ridicule that comes with claiming a three-legged pit bull killed the president. Well, that theory, however, uh, as much as I may believe it, has been called, quote, outlandish, annoying, childish, stupid, please stop talking about those people, unworthy of repeating, poorly imagined, the joke ran its course, a clear sign of mental illness, by whoever thought of it, uh, by literally everyone else on earth who has heard it. So, you know, Maybe that's not the one. Maybe that's not the one. Probably not. Probably not. So who do I think actually did do it? I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure, but I've been studying a fascinating theory that really makes you wonder how deep his assassination went and what forces he was battling in the months and years before his death. And I'm going to suck into that long and hard on the next episode on Monday. It's going to take a whole time suck to explain, and it's fucking fascinating as hell. It's been warping my brain for the past week. So listen on Monday to the big JFK wrap-up. But before you do... Here's some top five takeaways from today. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was a war hero, president of the United States, and slept with half of the world's beautiful women, even though he had the health problems of an almost dead, frail nine-year-old. So think about that the next time you complain about tummy ache or a headache. Think, what would JFK do? And then either do something monumental and brave and, and fascinating or, or just cheat on whoever you're with, I guess. Number two, uh, when he was in college, JFK sailed to France and took a convertible with him for the summer. And you thought your college stories were cool. Number three, the Kennedy siblings established the Peace Corps and Special Olympics. Members of my family have done a couple of bikeathons to raise money for some bullshit we can't remember. 
I'm glad there's not a mirror near me right now because I, I don't want to look at it. I can't, I can't stand the thought of looking at myself right now. Number four, JFK slept with actresses, secretaries, strippers, prostitutes, and even his dad's old mistress, all while at the White House. So can we please, all these years later, never talk about Monica Lewinsky again? Bill Clinton was a celibate monk compared to JFK. And number five, JFK may have been assassinated by members of our own government, and that assassination may have been covered up. No wonder people can't let this conspiracy go. That is some seriously crazy dark shit. And maybe not that shocking, though. You know, it's happened to so many other nations over the course of human history. Why do some of us think that we in the U.S. are immune to that level of corruption? Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well, thanks, suckheads. Hope you mother suckers enjoyed that first JFK episode. This subject has sucked my brain like no other. Went down some rabbit holes you get lost forever in. So if you're enjoying the suck, please follow on social media at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, slash Time Suck Podcast on Facebook. And check out those first and second generation uh, Time Suck tees if you haven't done so already. I'll be putting more pics of you suckers up on my social media, uh, Dan Cummins Comedy Soon on Facebook and Instagram. And again, if, you, if you've reached out and I haven't gotten back to you, sorry, I will eventually. This particular suck ate far more of my free time uh, as normal. Used every spare second to try and be as thorough as possible. But I see the messages as they come in and they keep me going. Even the critical ones are good. Help me become a better podcaster, a better person. You guys are consistently the best. Love how curious we all are about our world. Such a beautiful thing. All this curiosity is going to lead to far better things than this silly old podcast, and I am proud to be a part of the community we are building. The group that sucks together stays together, and no one sucks harder than we do. So have a great weekend, and tune into part two of this JFK Super Suck on Monday at noon, Pacific Daylight Time, when we shall all continue to keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.